The sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, things, uh, things always seem to be changing. Uh, for example, the year I was born, uh, gas was about 29 cents a gallon. Uh, of course, there were no smartphones. We did have a phone, uh, one, kitchen wall, and the cord did not stretch. Um, as kids, we were always taught to kind of dress up, you know, when you go out. It's appropriate to dress up. And just the other day, I saw a guy shopping in his pajamas. That's changed. Jobs, jobs, you would have one job for your career. Now, on average, uh, American worker will have between 12 and 15 jobs in his career. So, so much has changed in life, but there are still some things that do not change, that remain fixed and firm, uh, like a beautiful spring morning after a, a cold winter, or, or the joy of a mother over her, over her newborn. There are certain things that don't change, like like the stars, the north star that is used along with other stars to position yourself at sea and to, and to chart a course to go where you want to go. There are some things that just do not change, and I'm thankful for that. Our, our passage today, when you look at these verses in 31 to 38, you see something unshakable, unchangeable, something that is so fixed and firm and glorious that it really lays the tribulations in your life as impotent. Uh, that God is for us. God is for us. That there is no one that will stand against us. There is no one that will bring a charge against us. And there is no one that will ever separate us from his love. These are unshakable truths. You know, it's been said that the intelligent person is not the one who has the answer, but who asks the right questions. And Paul will do that for us. He begins this passage with a question. What shall we say to these things? He's really, uh, that, that one word could be translated, therefore, what shall we say to these things? He's kind of wrapping up what many think are, are all the blessings in chapters 5 through 8. Could be really the whole book. And he's saying, what shall we say to these great blessings? What shall we say to these things? 
I mean, Paul will lay before us through the use of three primary questions that we'll look at that the Christian remains fixed and convinced that his place with God in glory is a certainty. That there is no doubt in his mind or in our mind that we will be with God forever even in the midst of great suffering and trials that we will all walk through at one point in this life. John Stott, a British theologian, uh, recently passed away, said this, Paul hurls these questions out into space as if it were defiantly or triumphantly challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth. These are like the Everest of promises for us, these three questions. So I want to just read through them with you and and seek the answer that Paul gives uh, to, to give you greater, for the Christian here, to give you greater certainty. And, and if you're not a Christian, you're looking at the faith, that you would consider these things and see the hope that they provide and that it might draw you to God in greater measure. So look with me in the first question there, right in 31, the second half of the verse. First he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So the question is, who can be against us? I mean, that's a question you have to ask yourself in this life. Who can stand against you? Now, I guess at face value, there's a lot of things that can stand against you. I mean, the world can, culture, right? And the, the Roman government in the time that this was written for about three centuries stood opposed to the church, and they did a quite, job, a, quite a good job at doing it. And even today, there are governments that are against the Christian. In China, North Korea, the Middle East, they stand opposed to the advancement and the walking out of the Christian faith. That's happening today. Uh, but, but even for us, we don't face that same kind of persecution or opposition from the government. But there is an increase in the marginalization of the Christian. I, I mean, it, it is becoming... Um, you incur more hostility when faith is expressed in an outward way. That is true. But not just from opposition from governments and cultures, but opposition from ourselves. We have indwelling sin. We do things that we don't want to do. We don't do things that we want to do. And we get in corners and scrapes all the time. We, we seem to oppose ourselves. But then there's also the, there's the um, opposition from the prince of darkness. He is grim. I mean, Jesus said to Peter, he said that I'm praying for you because Satan seeks to sift you like wheat, that Satan was seeking to undermine the work of God in his life. Peter, later on in ministry, speaks about Satan being like a devil, or like a lion prowling about seeking whom he can devour, sifting and you know, prowling like a lion. Those are threatening terms. So, so when he says, you know, that who can stand against us, there seem to be a few lined up to do it. Perhaps you felt that way. Perhaps you feel like God hasn't been for you, or maybe you are greatly challenged and in fear of the way our culture is going. Well, to the question Paul says, uh, no one can stand against us. I, I mean, ultimately, no one can stand against us. Why? Well, God's for us. I mean, God is for his people. He's on our side. I mean, you just go back a few verses to see this. 
Is God against us? No. You saw in 28, God's working for us. I mean, God is working all things out, all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God is working things out. Even the suffering and the struggle, God is working that out for us. You know, he said that God had foreknew us and predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. These are things that God is doing for us. But, but not looking backwards, but looking forward. Look at verse 32. When you see this idea of if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, this would surely indicate that God is for us. And by the way, this would be a verse to memorize. You know, the, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? I mean, the, the argument that Paul is making is, if God did not spare his own son but offered him to save us, then is he not for us? I mean, he's really drawing our minds back to Genesis chapter 22, where, where Abraham was about to offer Isaac up. And God provided a ram for him. God brought the sacrifice to save. And it was a foreshadowing of what God would ultimately do in bringing forth the Son for us. That Jesus Christ would save us. It was God who gave up the Son. Octavius Winslow said, who gave Jesus up? It wasn't wasn't Judas for money. It wasn't Pilate for fear. It wasn't the Jews for envy, it was the Father for love. He loved us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him... We we call this an argument from the the greater to the lesser. In other words, his argument goes this way. If, If God would give us his own son, differentiating him from his other adopted sons, this is his own son, if he would give him up for us. Jesus is of in inestimable value. If he would give him up, will he not graciously give us all things? It's a greater to the lesser. If he meets the greater challenge, of course he will serve us at the lesser. Jesus did the same thing, but in reverse in Matthew chapter 6. When, when Jesus is encouraging the disciples of God's provision, he said if he takes care of the, 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 the birds that fly and the lilies that grow, and he clothes them in glory... He goes, how much more important are you? So he says, if God's going to take care of the lower form of creation, he'll surely take care of you. So is God on your side? Yes, absolutely. God is for us. And he'll graciously give us all things. That reminds us back in verse 28. Some of these things may be temporarily challenging. But he gives them to us so that he will prepare us for himself. John Flavel, a a Puritan, 17th century, said, he said, surely if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he ever should, after this, deny or withhold from his people any mercy, any comfort, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. So, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. No one can. So what do we say? Look back at 31 at the very first line. What shall we say? Then what do we say to God for these things? Well, we say thank you. Thank you that we have 
ultimate security. You know, security is one of those, those high felt needs that we have in this country. Security is very important to us. Um, you know, if you, you hear a noise downstairs, you don't just say, ah, it's nothing. You, you, you know, you, you're, you're on the point to defend yourself. If you get a new pain in your side, you think, i got to go to the doctor and get this checked out. I, I mean, we want security. We want protection. That's fundamental to all of, all of humanity. That's what gave birth to insurance companies, right? We want people kind of for us, helping support us. You know, Nationwide is a big insurance company. Their motto is, Nationwide is on your side. We want them on our side. We want them with us. We want them behind us. We want them protecting us. We want people, who doesn't want the best shooter on your side if you're playing basketball? I, I loved having, uh, so I got in a few scrapes as a kid, and I always seemed to choose the guy that was a higher pay grade than I was. And so I often needed help. And uh, my brother, thankfully, at the time was significantly larger than me or the guy I was getting in a scrape with. And whenever he'd come, so one guy, Joey, was across the street, got in a snowball fight, and he was starting to win really significantly. And uh, it was my brother who came out. And I, I just remember he had Joey, one hand was on an ankle, one hand was on a wrist. They were doing the swirly thing. And then Joey went airborne for a little while. And I didn't have a problem with snowballs for that season. But it was good to have him on my side. He was on my side. He was defending me. He was, this is what God says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's on our side. Do you understand that? You know, this is the hope of glory for us. This is the certainty. You know, everybody has hope. You cannot live without hope. But the hope that is had by the people of this world is always rooted in future events. It's always precarious. It's always uncertain. You cannot control what's going to happen. You may hope for all kinds of things. You cannot assure anything. The Christian hope is different. The Christian hope is rooted in what has already passed. He offered up his son. So our hope for the future is grounded in a reality. We don't hope based on a new philosophy or ideology or technology. There is Jesus Christ who entered our world in space and time, and he has died for those who believe in him, and he has taken upon himself their sins and their shame and their guilt, and he's forgiven them. So now God is on our side because he has, and he is our Savior. So, so I don't know what forces are opposing you, what is threatening you, but the promise of God is that he will graciously give you all things so that they cannot ultimately stand against you. You know, the cross of God, the cross of Christ really displays the generosity of God. How will he not graciously give us all things? John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said these words. He says, everything that is needful, he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. He will give us all things to endure in this life such that no one will ultimately stand against us. No threat, no harm, no fear. This is where I'm calling you to faith. You know, the book of Romans is really drawn from the, the book of Habakkuk, this idea of the just shall live by faith. And we've heard in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 a lot about 
uh, about the justice of God and how the believer has been justified uh, as he has faith in Christ. You know, I'm asking you to believe this. So what opposition is before you right now? It may be a health crisis. It, it may be some other person that's threatening you. Maybe a job, maybe something different. But, but that's where you, you, in faith, come to God and say, if you are for me, God, they cannot stand against me. This isn't, Christ, this isn't Christian triumphalism. This doesn't mean victory after victory after victory. It means perseverance, successful perseverance till that final day when we will have him in glory. So that's the first question. First question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. But look at the second question with me in 33 and 34. I'm going to put these two questions together. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Or who is it to condemn? You know, these, I'm bringing these questions together because they kind of have the language of the courtroom in them. This idea of judgment and condemnation. And this question is, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, again, at face value, probably a lot of people. You know, you have certain opponents. They probably are able to point out flaws and struggles and sins in your life. I mean, I, I know that Satan points out the sins of believer. He's an accuser of the brethren, we read in Revelation 12. Your own conscience does the same thing. I mean, your own, your own conscience can be like a prosecuting attorney, reminding you of all the things that you've done over all the years, how you've failed, how you've sinned, how short you've come of all that God designs for you. And, and we bear the weight of this. And so Paul's saying... <clears throat> Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, a lot of people will bring charges against God's elect. But his answer is, they won't stick. They won't remain. Why? Because it's God who justifies. God is the judge. The gavel has fallen. The verdict is rendered. Not guilty to those with faith in Christ. Not guilty. Why? It's God who justifies. Think back in chapter 3, when we learned about justification. You know, God is just. I want, I want you to be sure to know that God does punish sin. I mean, God doesn't just overlook sin and say, you know what, they had a bad, they had a bad go of it. God does punish sin. He punishes all, all sin will be punished. The Christian just knows that through faith in Christ, his sin has been given to Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, he took upon himself our sin. And God brought judgment upon his own son bearing our own sin. So God is just. Sin is punished. But God is also the justifier of those with faith in Christ. He pardons those with faith because Jesus has been their substitute. This is the great news of the gospel. This is the central tenet of the faith. That God justifies his elect. He justifies those with faith. That he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So, so, so how do we know that ultimately when you and I stand before God, because there is a future idea here. It's in the future tense. Uh, when we stand before God, what will that day be for you? It's a question you need to ask yourself. If you're a Christian, that day will be a good day. Why? Because it's God who justifies. But more than that, notice what he says in 34. He returns to the question, he says, who is it to condemn? And then he moves right to Jesus. It's Jesus who died. 
In other words, the reason that the Christian doesn't need to fear that day when he stands before God or she stands before God and you, have, you just have a, you have a life of train wrecks, but you have truly sought to be forgiven by God in Christ. Paul's reason is, no, Christ died for your sins. He was condemned in the flesh. Here's, here's how you can be so confident. The one, Jesus, who would come to bring condemnation has been condemned. He's the one. He's the, he's the one that says in Revelation, he comes and a sword comes out of his mouth, a sword of judgment. He's the one that's been condemned for you. He can't condemn you when he's been condemned for you. Not just did he die, but he was raised. This idea of resurrection, the idea of resurrection isn't simply that Jesus conquered death. That is true. But the idea of the resurrection is showing us that God has accepted the sacrifice that Jesus offered to save us. <clears throat> That's why in Romans 4, he says that he was raised for our justification. In other words, if you're really wondering, has God really accepted Jesus' sacrifice for me? The fact that he was raised from the dead means yes. But more than that, notice what it says. He is at the right hand. It's a reference to Psalm 110. Here, Jesus Christ died. He was raised. He ascends to the right hand of God. He's enthroned, now ruling, governing over all creation. And there, his eye is looking to us as he intercedes for us. He intercedes, he pleads with the Father. We sang it, five bleeding wounds, plead for me. Can you imagine Jesus Christ praying for you? Robert Murray McShane <clears throat> said, he said this, he said, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Do you take comfort for that? The question is, who can bring a charge against you? Who will condemn you ultimately? Paul's saying no one. Why? Because God justifies and Jesus Christ has died. He's been raised. He's been ascended. Now he is actually pleading for you. He's praying for you. So what do we say to these things? Paul asked that question in 31. What do we say to these things? Well, I would say this. If you're a Christian, if you have sunk your faith and trust into Christ, then banish guilt and shame. Do you still feel burdened by your sins? Do you still feel overwhelmed by the things you've done wrong? Do you hear those voices in your head? You're a sinner. God won't love you. You keep sinning the same way. Your repentance isn't good enough for him. Do you hear those voices? I know uh, that in our church at large, there are many of you that do. You, you struggle. You have a problem with lying, stealing perhaps, committed adultery, pornography. What he's saying here, he's not giving a license to sin. He's not giving a pass to enter heaven. He's saying to confess your sins. Listen, First John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So we all have sinned. But, but he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so if those voices, if you're a Christian and, and you want to keep pulling, you, 
you want to keep dragging the shame behind you, uh, I, I would ask you to consider to confess those sins and to look to God and say, he has justified me. That you look to Christ, he has died, he has been raised, he is seated, and now he is interceding for me. T to banish the shame the Christian is to be living with joy and confidence in a certainty of his glory, not because he's cleaned his life up, because he has died for you, and he's been raised for you, and he is now interceding for you. I would ask you to, you know, again, McShane, this kind of 19th century Scot, he says, for every look you take at yourself, take ten of Christ. For every look you take, you take of yourself and the sin and the shame and the broken. Take ten of Christ. Look at Christ. He's the one that saves us. He's the one that will deliver us. He's the one that will give us confidence. This is really an important doctrine. To believe in the justification by faith means that God has justified you. You know, Martin Luther, when he <clears throat> stood before the Roman Catholic Church and he espoused this doctrine before the powers of of the time. He uh, never let go of that. That was a central plank, he said, in the Christian faith. In fact, he said this. He said that, that the person, though, the common person struggles to really believe it. We have trouble believing it. And so he said this. He says, you have to beat it into their heads continually to continue to remind people you are forgiven in Christ not because you've pulled yourself out of some, some sin pit. Yes, I want you to. Yes, I want you to walk in righteousness by his grace. But it's Christ who has delivered us. And so instead of the shame and the guilt that we drag behind us, make much of Christ. He's delivered you from that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. God justified. And who will be condemning you? Not Christ. He was condemned for you. And I would also say this, just as a corollary, this would probably remind us not to be condemning of other people. You know, I find that those, those that struggle most to enjoy the forgiveness of God are usually those that struggle the most to extend the forgiveness of God. If you look around always measuring people and kind of looking down your nose because they're not as holy and as cleaned up as you are, you'll probably be blinding yourself to the very freedom from condemnation that Christ has done for you. So, so I would say to go together, to enjoy the freedom that we will face no condemnation, and in the same measure to give grace to those who perhaps are struggling as you once did. Okay, look at the third question with me. So we see this, who can separate you or uh, uh, who can stand against you? No one, since God is for you. Uh, who will bring a charge against you? No one, because God has justified you. Look at the third promise. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate? I think this is where Paul gets a little more devotional, looking more to the heart here. I, I, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is a, a doctrine we have trouble grasping. We're raised in this, this meritocracy of the Western culture, that you're only valued based upon what you do and how you perform. And here we get this, this love of Christ. 
I, I pray that you would have a deepened love for Christ even after these verses, after we explain them and read them. You know, I, I, I think um, yeah, I, I think this is probably one of the hardest things to grasp, that God has really loved his people. Um, Paul, if you see what he does, he, he strings out these things that often cause us to think God doesn't love us. He says, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, uh, peril, danger of the sword. You know, are, these things enter our worlds and we begin to think, God, do you love me? God, where is your love for me? Why am I getting beaten about so bad? And, and, and we begin to question whether God actually loves us when we're in the midst of suffering. And, and Paul, it's interesting, he chose those, those examples of suffering. Do you know why it's interesting? Because Paul experienced every one of those. He, he did. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, he experienced every one, and he would experience the last one in the way he died, with the sword. So, so he's a man speaking. He says, shall these separate you from the love of God? He's, he's giving, this is an autobiography. Shall these separate you? And he says, no. No, in, in even these things, in all those sufferings will be more than conquerors. More than conquerors. It, it, it's like an intensified form of being a conqueror. In the Greek, it's, it's like being a super conqueror. Now, it isn't like Superman, where you're faster than a speeding bullet, you can leap over tall buildings. It's not like that. A super conqueror means that you will not only persevere through the trial, but the trial will actually be useful to you. And it'll bring good to you in cultivating and preparing you to see God. And that's why I think if you notice there in 36 where he <clears throat> quotes that Psalm 44. And, and, and in Psalm 44, the people of Israel were faithfully following God. They said, we're suffering for your sake, they said. And, and it's a psalm that shows the people of God suffering. And I think Paul, Paul brings it in here to remind us that the saints of God have always suffered. There's always been suffering has marked the lives of the faithful. Always has been that way, and it will be till the end. There'll be a measure of suffering. But we are more than conquerors. Paul's convinced of that. Notice how he says it. Neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, uh, nor, any, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible promise. He looks at the realm of life, life and death. He looks at the realm of the spirit world. You know, angels and rulers. He looks at the realm of time, this time forth, now and you know things present, things to come. He looks at the realm of space, heaven and hell. And just in case you can think of something that might threaten us that somehow snuck through his, his expressions, he says nothing else in all creation will be able to do it. Nothing. No, we are secure. So what should we say to this? In verse 31, he asks the question, what should we say to these things? To this promise of never being separated from the love of God, I, I would say be assured of his love. Be assured of his love. Listen, I grant to you that when you enter in a season of difficulty, it clouds our vision of God's love. It, it kind of clouds it. That we always don't feel that sense of love. And I pray that you do. You know, I think of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan minister in New England. 
he testifies sometimes he'd go right into the woods and he would have an experience with the presence of God that was just, he said, I was ravished by the love of God. You just have those sometimes in life, you have those unique experiences where the presence and the power of God is so palpable. It's so now. It's so real that it's overwhelming. Uh, I've had those very few, uh, but they've been incredible. I don't think that's the norm. I think in this world of suffering, it's more of a fight to understand. And Paul's saying here, I don't want you to feel the love of God necessarily. I want you to know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because oftentimes things cause us to not feel it. But it exists. That's what I want you to draw away from, is you cannot separate yourself, nor can suffering separate you from the love of God. So last week we had about three or four days of just rain and clouds, and it was just an ugly few days, if you remember. Did any of you deny that the sun was still not in the sky? It was there. You didn't see it, maybe. You didn't feel it. You didn't feel the direct warmth of the sunlight. It was all there. Nobody denies the sun wasn't there, but you didn't feel it. It it is the same in the midst of suffering, where God's love is still there for you, doing a unique, perhaps hard-to-understand work in you. It's there, loving you, cultivating. Nothing can separate you from that. Nothing. Even though you may not feel it. So so I was trying to, you know, Rachel, and I asked her permission if I could uh, uh, tell tell you this, but she's going to be induced tomorrow. <clears throat> so she contends that she's had a 32-month pregnancy. We have assured her she hasn't, but she's ready to have the child. And uh, so tomorrow is, uh, Lord willing, the day that she'll be induced, and um, it'll be the fifth in five years of, of five grandchildren under five. I know a few of you here, that, that is like I just got out of kindergarten, but uh, but it's quite a few for us. And uh, but But I was thinking about, the surprise that I have over grandchildren, and I know, I know I speak for Anna Randy and for probably most every other grandparent in this place, um, there was a love. I, I thought that we'd love the grandchildren, but I was surprised at how much I love them, kind of over the moon. Um, you think they're a generation away, you know, two generations away, and you're not going to have that same passion that you had for your own children. You know, they are your children's children, uh, but you, you just think there's a distance there that's going to mitigate some of the love. Not so. But but the irony, uh, the irony with grandchildren is that you have this heart full of love and you'll probably be gone by the time they begin to realize it. And, and you want them to know, you know, th- there's this impulse. You want them to know, I really love you. But they just can't get it. They don't have the minds for it. They're two, three, four, five, six. They don't have the minds for it. And I feel like that's what we are sometimes. We're like these little kids where God has this just unfathomable, you know, love for us. And and we just don't walk in it. We don't get it. We don't feel it. And if we don't feel it, we don't know that it's there. And it's something we have to beat into our heads. God loves us. If you have any question about it, Just spend time meditating on the cross. He delivered his own son for us. This is so hard to grasp, but think about, like when I look at these grandkids, 
They just don't get it, but it's there for them in full measure. I would also say this. What should we say to this? I would say be willing to engage greater costs for the gospel. You know, this love, love is the only true motivation for sacrifice. You know, love is the true motivation. If you know how much he loves you, you are more willing to embrace costs for the sake of the gospel. You know, we have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. If you're a Christian, these are wonderful opportunities to introduce conversations that are transcendent and truthful about God, that we can tell people want to be thankful. They just don't know what to be thankful over. We can tell them. We are the mouthpiece of God. So be willing to embrace costs, even in conversations, speaking to people about the nature of God. We have been bathed in a divine love that we will forever be enjoying, of which they may not know. And yet we are the ones that can tell them about it. Take this opportunity. Embrace the costs associated with it. And then last, I would say this. I hope you're challenged by this love. Challenged by it. This is not a license to sin. All this assurance I've been pouring out to you, that no one can stand against you, no one can bring a charge against God's elect, no one can separate you from the love, so sovereign and so solid is God's love for you, that does not engender a casualness with sin. It, it isn't a reward for your faithfulness. It's unilateral grace of God to us and should cause us. I mean, it's a challenge to the grumbler. It's a challenge to the complainer. It's a challenge to the, the one who's idle. It, it is an encouragement to have us be humble and grateful and thankful. And I would say, if, if you're not a Christian here, you have never confessed Christ, you've never repented of your sins, you have to ask that question there in 31. Instead of saying, if God is for us, you need to consider, if God is not for us, what would that be? What would it be like for God to be against us? How, how would that be to stand in opposition to God because that is what the world is right now. And I would encourage you to consider these things. The brevity of life, the failed attempts that you have tried to make to, to reform your life that have failed over and over again, and that you would consider Christ, that you would, ne you would not neglect his mercy. Because even today, even today, if you move with faith towards God in Christ, he will forgive and save and deliver you. But for the Christian here, these verses are worthy of committing to memory. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Let us be thankful. Let's take a moment now and just in silence, perhaps give thanks to him who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Ask perhaps even for greater clarity in understanding such assurance and hope. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.